Well, we may not have hailed the ascension of King Charles III, but we're here to talk gibberfish, aren't we, Don? Yep, we're here in just regular hats instead of magic royal hats. Yes, the old man has now acquired the magic hat, which allows him free reign over the the kingdoms of England, Scotland, Wales, and that wee bit of Ireland that we don't try and think about too much, because it causes several headaches per second to anyone with a law degree or an interest in politics or national security. It's uh, it's fascinating to have been through a moment of history and just kind of went, eh, <laughs> I don't give a shit. Yeah. See, I've I've experienced it on both sides. I've had people uh, like myself, most most people kind of go, it's cool that it's happening, it's cool that we're living through this, you know, fairly monumental point in history, but it's not it's not a big deal. I'm not gonna make I'm not gonna make that bigger fuss. And then I've had the opposite end of that of people just saying this is a this is such a big point in history we need to celebrate people buying can bunting you know the big uh, the union jack bunting people buying masks with king charles's face on it which that's a bit weird <laughs> yeah and then there's the other end of people who are just going 100 million pounds on that why aren't you saving the nurses which they do have a point but at the same time your your, your argument is invalid because it happened your pro, your protesting did nothing you just got your sign taken off you yeah big uh very disappointed in that you know just as someone who doesn't really value a monarchy um i understand the historical significance of living in one last monarchy uh, monarchical republics i would just kind of wish we didn't have this weird thing where there's a magic family who by dint of bloodline just have complete uh supremacy over us if we if they decide to use it um, everything is a bit outdated, you know, after maybe say the 17, 1800s, you know, years of revolutions, uh, in which we all kind of realized, oh, we actually should be valued as people, not property, but, you know, g- go on. I, it's, it's an odd one, but I, uh, I feel really embarrassed that the UK is shutting down, you know, pro-democracy or, you know, people wanting more democracy in their, you know, country. It's, it's a weird one to see like the police carting people off for, being a public nuisance um, because they're holding signs saying down with the monarchy or, you know, abolish the monarchy or, you know, no one's calling for the heads of anybody in the royal family, by the way. It's just, hey, can we knock this anachronistic shit off? Yeah, and no one is pulling pulling an America and storming uh, Buckingham Palace dressed as a, (laughs) a, a bison. There was no one, no one was hurt, no one was even really being aggressive, there was just shouting and sign waving, yeah. and it was shut down almost immediately. Although to be it really British, you'd have to have a Highland cow, so it'd just be like the the, the shaman, <laughs> the four chan yeah. shaman guy, but he's uh, <laughs> he's just ginger. <laughs> I'd pay. My head immediately went to pigeon. Your head uh, inst- instead of showing up as a cow or a bison or something like. That, they get one weird guy who hangs around uh, that Piccadilly Circus in London, dress him like a pigeon, give him a big stick with a maraca on the end of it so he can make some noise and rattle, and just follow him into Buckingham Palace, <laughs> shouting down with the monarchy. What do we want? <laughs> when do we want it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I shot on the floor. Again. I, just, I, I swear there was something about the January 6th uh, insurrection. I'm sure somebody took a shit in the, the House of Representatives. <laughs> 
yeah, there was it was right on one of the desks of a very vocal, uh, you know, one of the good people, you know, supporter of LGBTQIA rights, supporter of women's rights, just you know, a real progressive person, and then some good old boy with a with the reddest neck of all time to say take a Donald Trump on on our desk on their desk. Yeah, I I know that they had the guy with the the boots up on Nancy Pelosi's desk, and I know AOC was hiding in a closet somewhere. I think, but yeah, I, yeah. I remember there like being somebody taking a shit, and I was like, that like okay, you storm the Capitol, mm, completely the wrong way to handle anything. You storm through, like you you try to break into, have your voice heard on the the Senate floor, still not really right to handle. It. You take a shit on someone's desk. No, that's just a hard no. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if there was ever... that's the guy on the night out who, when everyone's saying, "Ah, I feel a bit, I feel a bit tired," I might just head home. That's the prick that brings over shots, and not just shots of whiskey or shots of vodka. That guy brings over shots of Jaeger bomb. Start saying stuff like, "Nights is getting started, fuckers." Guys, he's I found... that asshole. I paid the bar. They mixed the Jaeger with tequila. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> The guy is usually in their mid forties, and ha- I mean, given the weekend free from their significant other. Mm. I uh, I don't know how I feel about the coronation. Really, I just kind of like eh, it passed. We're we're done with it. So, I mean, now it's been a couple of weeks since then, um, and sky hasn't fallen. But yeah, <laughs> yeah the impressed. timer for King Charles is ticking. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll totally the cult. The sky hasn't fallen, but neither is the price of my fucking bills, so not really yeah. happy. People are still paying stupid prices for petrol and energy and things. But, uh, yeah, it's not, the country isn't eating itself alive right now, so. Speaking of things being eaten alive, I've been playing Dead Island uh, some more. I think I talked so, about this last episode. Um, yeah, I've been trying to track down Dead Island 1. I yeah. found it on Steam. Oh. I don't know if you could find it there. I got it on a pretty decent bargain as well. It was only like 20 yeah. quid for the, the first one, Riptide, which is an expansion of the first one, hmm. and a uh, like an 8-bit or 16-bit game that they made as a spin-off that I had no idea existed. So it was a bargain. Um, I'm just now several hours into it. I don't want to look at my playtime. I imagine it's somewhere in the 20 to 30 hours range. And yep. I'm now into the, the cities and the jungle maps, which are beyond the initial kind of beach area. That I'm sure everybody knows. Um, the beach area gives you a really good feel of you're watching the apocalypse happen in paradise. You know, it's white sands, blue uh, blue oceans, these uh, fantastic uh, local huts that are built up, raised up on sticks, that you walk out into this uh, these like wooden structures that go out into the ocean, this kind of long pier, and it's, you know, it's straight out of paradise. And then someone missing half of their face comes to bite your face off. That's the kind of nightmare scenario you're dealing with, and it's very, it's very immersive. You're very kind of immediately hooked into it, and then now I'm in the city map, and then it's just a nightmare. Like it, it sounds so much more violent than everything else that's been handled in the game so far, and it's it's fun. It's really fucked up at points, um, because there's always this constant like, there's a sound of a city dying, where you have like there's constantly like somebody screaming. There's constantly somebody uh, being like, you know, attacked. There's zombie groans all the time. Even when you can't see the zombies, there's something moaning in the wind that makes you kind of on edge. 
And it's interesting because the longer you spend there, you kind of get used to it and you acclimatize to the sounds of this you know, horror film playing out in front of you. And then all of a sudden it switches back to, I'm actually kind of terrified here. Um, interesting enough, I'm the most terrified when I'm in what's supposed to be the safe zone, which is, I think it's like a police station or it's like the mayor's office, which has been secured by a bunch of like former police and the mayor is there as well. And you just hear like the the, the sound just intensifies. So there's, it always says that somebody like banging on the window and trying to break in, or there's zombies constantly just outside on the other side of a very thin wall. It's uh it's very immersive again, like that same kind of horror feel. Only difference is that now they start to induce the kind of special infected. Since like Left for Dead, we just kind of take a standard. You know, normal zombies aren't entertaining enough. We need one that jumps, one that's got like a big explosion thing, some kind of. Uh, tank zombie something like that to just kind of mix things up but uh yeah it's it's interesting although um because you're in the city you're constantly running from enemies because it's not worth your time to fight all of them um you often run into the ones that explode which pisses me off because it means i die i have to go back to respawn point and start my journey again but it's uh it's funny every now and again you catch a clip of yourself you know it's just so stupid that i've knocked myself uh flat out by just not looking where i'm going but uh, the, the jungle um, missions are good as well because you know, they introduce another special zombie, um, which is where they get to basically the end of most zombie stories and just introduce the alpha zombie. And it's yeah. just a bigger zombie. It's got more savage attacks. It's always in a state of fury and frenzy. And it sprints at you. That's typically, I'd say, the alpha zombie type. And they've just introduced that. At the same time, they've introduced uh, basically the AK-47. So I'm now into less of the kind of I'm still playing as one punch mode where I have like the ability to ragdoll anybody in the game, but it's not quite the same when you know, um, they they seem to focus on the guns now that I'm in the jungle, and I'm missing it when it was just a zombie game because now I have to fight humans that have survived, and they're all carrying pistols and they shoot you on sight, and it's not the same game as it was when it started. And I get that you know we talk a lot about how in zombie media. You know the real monsters are the humans, but now I'm kind of like, can I? Because the game isn't good enough. Um, for example, it has an auto aim assist that I can't turn off, so I'm trying to place precision shots where I want them to go, and my auto aim is dragging my shots away to the side because it thinks, oh no, just aim a little to the left, it'll be better. I'm like, no, just let me put the bullet where I want to. I'd, I'd have a much more engaging time with this game. It's still fun. I, I still really enjoy when I'm just fighting zombies. And for a game from, I want to say, like, 2005, 2008, maybe at most, it's surprisingly good on a PC. I mean, I'm playing the remaster or, or the definitive edition, but it's held up surprisingly well. I hope you find a copy of this, because it's impressive. I think it does really stand up and does, you know, stand the test of time. It sounds like it's at least worth a shot, and it's kind of making me think that maybe we should have paid more attention to it back in the day. But uh, just when you're talking about having to go back and restart shit, it reminds me of what I'm currently playing just now. I'm going through uh, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Oh, yeah. In the, amount of, in the amount of times I am... In fact, before I get into that, you're talking about your playtime. I don't even want to look at the amount of time I've spent in Tears of the Kingdom so far because it's been it's been a lot. I was going to say, for the uh, record, folks, from recording this, I think it's been out a week. Yeah, I think I might be into the 30, 40 hours mark. 
So I've been I've been putting in some time, and I feel like I've just started. That's that was the thing with Breath of the Wild as well. Yeah, I put in at least thirty hours, and I was like, oh cool, the intro feels like it's done. That is a full time job. Yeah, <laughs> Dom is a full time Zelda th- player. Yeah, and that's the thing about Tears of the Kingdom. The main point or the main part of the first game was uh, building out the map using the Sheikah towers, that are basically just these giant mapping equipment and these mapping towers. There's I think 10 or 12 of them throughout the entire map and your whole point is you go there activate the tower and you basically fill out that portion of the map Mm. and the other part of it was doing shrines and getting upgrade materials and things like that they've decided to keep the shrines as they are which is fine Uh, you do the shrines the shrines are little puzzles little dungeons which I'm, i'm all cool for i'm all good with that's that shit's fun i enjoy that what they've decided to do with the maps though is you have three areas to cover instead of just the one. Luckily, when you activate the new, I think they call them Skyview Towers now, mm. it covers two portions of the map. Third map, you actually have to go down the depths of Hyrule and run around and activate these little uh, light glyph things that allow you to dispel the big evil nasty shit that's currently uh, ravaging Hyrule. And I'm just thinking, right, so there's a story mode to deal with. There's the sky map to deal with. There's the ground map. There's the depths. And then I've got all the fucking rounds to do it. And if I then go out from that and I want to get all the armor piece, that's another fucking trick. Then I want to get all the uh, the Korok seeds so I can get as much storage capacity as I want. There's going to be at least a thousand of those fucking things. Like, when am I going to be finished this game? Well, I want to fucking know. Whereas, and my main issue with that is, whereas it was fun in Breath of the Wild, it's starting to feel a little bit bloated in Tears of the Kingdom because there's so much you can do in Tears of the Kingdom. With the weapon crafting system, you can literally take a, a stick you find on the ground, and with this uh, fusion system that you have, you can stick a boulder on the end of it, and boom, you've got a hammer. Hmm. Okay. And you also, you through the game, you find that Hyrule was basically like the technological marvel that is, and where the Sheikah technology comes from, is basically from an ancient race of creatures called the Zonai. Uh, they can help the Hellions set up their technology and shit. Uh, but they've left remnants of their technology, so they'll be have they'll have uh, big wind machines that you can attach to rafts, and then you've got a speedboat. Uh, you've got flamethrowers that you can attach to your shield and just run around burning things. Uh, so you'll have things like that that you can then fuse to your technology, fuse to your sword. So at one point, I was walking walking around with a cannon attached to my shield. Was it? That shit's fun. That is interesting, especially for Zelda, because like Zelda always has the aesthetic of kind of cutesy. Like I know it does get kind of serious at points, but yeah. it always seems kind of like uh, don't want to say children's cartoon, but it has that lighter aesthetic of it's an adventure that you're going on. Yeah. Whereas it's like I strapped the cannon to my shield is literally something out of Berserk. <laughs> yeah. It's quite literally. I have a giant cannon. I'm going to stick it onto my shield, and I'm going to go around blasting people with it. Basically, it's like Dan Anyway, I started blasting, bah, bah, <laughs> shooting cannonballs at motherfuckers. I uh, just because you were you mentioned how long do you think it would take to beat um, from Metro uk, which is a newspaper in the UK, who somehow cover a lot of gaming, and it's a, a newspaper you see on like trains and uh, yeah, it's like, a free buses. newspaper. But their estimate is the game, like a normal playthrough, should be fifty to sixty hours, assuming you get distracted. Oh, 60 to 70. 
However, uh, there's also answers from GamesRadar who are saying if you want to do 100% completion, expect 100 hours. And HowLongToBeat.com is pointing to 67.5 hours for a, I assume, full, slightly distracted playthrough. Um, hmm. So, like, the main story, and you also grind up a bit to get better equipment or something, or to do some extra yeah. quests. So, yeah, um, Dom has at least another solid week of gaming at best if he wants to try and get yeah. through this game. <laughs> yeah, and I'm the kind of person I like to do quite a lot of the game. I mean, I'm not going to go out of the way and get... Um, I mean, in Breath of the Wild, you had these things called Korok Seeds, and uh, you got them and it allowed you to upgrade your storage capacity. And there was 923 or 932 of these little fuckers kicking about. And I just thought, I'm just going to get as much as I can to get a decent amount of storage. I don't give a fuck about maxing this stuff out. That's the only thing that I missed in that game. But I went and activated all the Sheikah Towers, got all the shrines, got the armor. Uh, did a whole shit ton of side quests. I didn't do all the side quests because I don't have that much. Uh, in Tears of the Kingdom, I might actually do less because it just seemed so much. Yeah, I mean, once you have a functional, I guess, like a functional build, do you really need mm. to go and get that? I mean, I, there'll be people who do the hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. If this, so, was, I mean, I think there are people that have done the hundred percent. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so, Which is it's been a whole week. Scary. Dom. <laughs> yeah. There's obviously somebody who's like, I did it in a day. And you're like, why? <laughs> what did you? It's like, how, when did you sleep? <laughs> did you just have Wait. an IV hooked into your veins. Did you just not eat? I played it on two consoles at once. That doesn't even work. Shut up. <laughs> I played it on two consoles at once to get 100% in 24 hours. <laughs> that is the YouTube video. I'd, I'd watch that. Just somebody playing with their feet and their hands at the same time, playing Zelda twice. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm i interested, though, because it comes out, and I want to say it was at, like, 98, 99% on, like, Metacritic, and it, it took, like, a couple, like, some people who really, like, reviewed it badly almost deliberately badly. Because um, you notice that every now and again there's a game that gets like the, the 10 out of 10s. A year ago it was Elden Ring. Um, I would say this year it probably be Zelda. Um, Mario games seem to get quite high, maybe not quite 99%, but like in the, the low 90s. And every now and again you notice a newer website, something without as much clout as say Kotaku, Games Radar, stuff like that, generally comes along and goes 60% and it seems to just chop the score down quite a bit. As if somebody's coming out, they're just kind of like be a bit controversial and make a name for themselves. Yeah, I've noticed. I've noticed that quite a lot, especially for Tears of the Kingdom, saying that why am I paying more money for this version of the game when it's almost exactly the same as Breath of the Wild, but I can build cars? I was like, well, you're just being, you know, controversial for con- uh, controversy's sake because people still bought the game. And off the back of Breath of the Wild, I've seen tons of people enjoying the game. And just because you don't like the building mechanic or you've not actually seen much of it apart from you can build things or it's it's different this time or you still have to keep track of your weapons breaking, you've just decided to, uh, 40%, not interested, don't care. I, I never understood the argument against that when it came out for Breath of the Wild that I can't believe this uh, this fantasy adventure game has a, like a weapon durability thing. I'm like... That's fairly standard, I expect. I mean, I'm kind of used to it in most of the games I play, but I'm used to you know, games breaking my shit um, to try and you know make it a bit harder for you to continue on and make you think about your choices. It's not that surprising to see it in a Zelda game. Yeah, although the one thing that did bug me the most is I did watch a video on release day. A guy was gifted a re- early copy from Nintendo, 
and he played through the game and said, uh, it's annoying that Tears of the Kingdom diminishes what made Breath of the Wild good and focuses more on puzzles. And I just kind of said, have you played a Zelda game before? It, it's like, all about the puzzles. <laughs> what are your key highlights of Breath of the Wild? Was man, I really enjoyed the, the this is like how harsh the shrine puzzles were at points. Like it, some of them yeah. were like a genuine like head scratcher moment of how do I get through here? Yeah. yeah, and this guy's going. I preferred it when it was just you know open world sandboxy type shit. Tell me you're not a Zelda fan without telling me you're not a Zelda fan because if you see that Zelda games have too many puzzles, that's all certain Zelda games are is puzzles and dungeons. I don't understand. I I don't count that as a valid argument. Now I wonder if this is the the kind of curse of the reviewer thing, and this is something that uh, Yahtzee from back in the day on the Escapist put me onto. Yahtzee is the guy behind Zero Punctuation, a legendary iconic review series that you either love or hate. But uh, it's something we grew up watching basically as young teenagers on the internet, and he had a a thing where he explained that. As much as the people who love certain games love a 40, 50, 60 hour sandbox experience, if you're a reviewer with uh, maybe say like a, a, a week turnaround time to go in, play a game, and then write a full review discussing the game, a 40, 50, 60 hour marathon session is a pain in the ass. So you basically have to speedrun through the essential content and then you get to write your review at the end because the story is kind of more important to the review than all the side puzzles and stuff like that. So maybe as a reviewer, previously he played Zelda games and just sprinted for the finish line. Whereas as a fan, you go through and you enjoy all the extra content that makes the game a bit more three-dimensional. I don't know why I'm defending this dick, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I suppose that's that a, a good way to look at it. I hadn't really considered that before, but it was just... For my mind, saying that a Zelda game has too many puzzles is literally the same thing as that the person from IGN who reviewed Pokemon Alpha Sapphire which is a water themed game for saying that there was too much water <laughs> right the, this was from a, the point in the Pokemon games where like, there was a theme uh, there was you know red blue and yellow which you know corresponded to themes of the legendary birds at the time and then you had Pokemon Gold and Silver, where literally the two legendary Pokemon in that game were a giant silver bird and a giant gold bird. So Pokemon uh, Ruby and Sapphire literally had the fire Pokemon who created ground in Ruby and the water Pokemon that created all the water in the seas in the world in Pokemon Sapphire. And this guy goes, good game, too much water. My brother in Christ, he is the Pokemon that controls all the water in the world. What were you expecting? My brother Greg, he is Pokey Neptune. What are you wanting here? <laughs> exactly. Now, I actually had a question, and I don't know if you're maybe the right person to ask this, or maybe you can find an answer for me. I have been wanting to play a Pokemon game, because I've never actually played one all the way through. I need a oh, way of fuck. playing it, and I need a game recommendation, basically, for a, a decent Pokemon. Maybe not the newer ones. I kind of want to play the old school ones, but obviously... The older ones are now basically out of use unless you can find a working Game Boy from back in the day. Um, so I, I'm looking for any recommendations on Pokemon because I feel like it's something that's missing out of my, you know, uh, bona fides as a as a gamer. Um, I feel yeah. like I should at least have one way of saying, hey, you know, I've played this Pokemon all the way through. I have the gym badges, my friend. I yeah. 
I, I I can just want to take a, a moment here to congratulate you. How the hell did you get through the nineties without playing a Pokemon game? Like, that is that is a genuine head scratcher for me. I was in sports. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You weren't allowed to do both. Yeah, you, you don't have time for football or basketball and Pokemon. Okay, you pick one yeah. and you do it. Um. So yeah, that was it. Is a weird one because you know I. And weirdly enough, I saw, I don't remember, uh, Twitch was randomly, there's a channel like called Twitch Plays Pokemon or Twitch Watches Pokemon, and they mm-hmm. were just broadcasting the whole show. And I sat down and watched a couple episodes, I was like, yeah, it's kind of fun. It's like a, it's, it's kid's cartoon, you know, it's, yeah. an, it's a serious anime, it's also a kid's cartoon. Like, it's a monster of the week, villain of the week, or problem of the week type show that you just sit the kids in front of and they watch the cute turtle people do the cute turtle dance and then they go away yeah. and they, they find out that, oh, look. Maybe their weird turtle powers help unbreak or help break this dam, and it flows, uh, returns the river to its proper use, and all the starmies and whatever are happy. Um, but I watched some of that because um, I think that was on during uh, COVID, because um, you had that and Pokemon Go at the same time, and it's like, huh, Pokemon's coming back, and it got me thinking. Yeah. Uh, there's a gap in my knowledge that I, I wish I'd kind of fixed when I was uh, maybe a bit younger. That's one. You say that not playing a Pokemon game is one thing that's missing from your sort of your nerd credentials. It's it's one thing that's missing from mine as well. I do not like the Pokemon cartoon. I've never liked it, even when I was younger. Uh, I remember watching it, just thinking, "When's Ash going to get to a gym and do a, a gym battle?" Because there's season there's you'd watch it a couple times a week. But when's Ash going to do something that's in the game? Uh, and you know. Ash is meant to be this kind of bumbling inept trainer. I was like, dude, I'm better than this. Like, I've got a fucking Charizard already. I'll go play that. Uh, so yeah, and it's something that baffles most people because when they, I tell them, it's like, yeah, I've kind of kept relatively consistent with the Pokemon games. Like, uh, what's kept me going? I've not played the latest one, but up to a certain point, I was getting them just to kind of play them with my niece because uh, she's of that age. Where it's like, oh, cute things. Like, she's not really down for the battling. But she'll collect them and give them dumb names like uh, she caught a dragon type Pokemon and called it Cheese Ball <laughs> you do you kid Cheese Ball uses <laughs> violent roar you're like Cheese Ball, cheese ball uses earthquake I was like good lord Charles is genius the, the mighty Cheese Ball smashes the earth sending shockwaves to its opponent <laughs> like, yeah. she called it Cheese Ball what the fuck <laughs> Uh, so... I was proud of her, quite frankly, because I have done that many times. Like, I'd get a Pokemon called Shit Stick or something like that. <laughs> but uh, I still think the best but... name is still it's just based on the, that stupid drawing. It's just Dick Butt. It's just such a dumb name. <laughs> yeah. If I ever name anything, it's almost default. It's just Dick Butt. <laughs> yeah. But you're asking what game to start with. That is a that is a tense question. Yeah. It's an evolved question, but because I, I, for convenience's sake, I would say start from the beginning. But I'm not gonna, because uh, the original games feel very dated, very over their time. Now it's the least feature-rich version of the game. Uh, there's not enough. There's not a whole hell of a lot to get you through that. It doesn't really hold your hand. Uh, what I would probably recommend is the. Soul Silver or Heart Gold games that came in the DS, but I say that knowing that those games are at least 90 quid each. So if you could emulate those somehow, I'd recommend starting from there. Mm. 
I actually I have other questions about like DS twos and stuff like because I didn't own a DS um, yeah. either because again like you don't get to pick you it's either sports or Nintendo that was your childhood yeah. deal with it um, and I was I, up in the CEX which is like a, it's kind of like a pawn shop for for gamers and that yeah. is um, they had like a, a a wall of old Nintendo consoles and I'm like if I wanted to play it I think that the DS might be the way to do it. Yeah, the DS is absolutely the way to go because that allows you to play, if you get one with the Game Boy port at the bottom, if you pick up a Pokemon game for Game Boy Advance, you can just chuck it in the DS. You also have, like, remember uh, we talked about this, there was like a lighter version of the Nintendo Switch, so it was like the full version, the full fat version was the original one with the docking station, and then they made one that was primarily for taking about with you, and there was all Yeah, the, the Switch Lite. Yeah, the bright colourful ones, and there's a lot of those. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> That's because people bought them for their kids and then realised you can't hook them up to TVs. So, yeah. And the charge isn't that great on them, if I remember right. Yeah. There was also uh, like five PS5s in the store. And I'm like, holy shit. This was the most like precious thing on the internet for years. And all of a sudden they're yeah. just hanging about because nobody wants them or nobody can really afford them or there's not enough games. I don't know whatever reason people ha- like cash them in. But they're all sitting there. They're still, they're still about five hundred pounds. So you're not exactly yeah. getting a massive discount. TX is not a big. If you hand stuff in, they get a discount. When it comes yeah. to the resale value, yeah. Now you get. I think there's a game that pretty much just came out. I think it might be. I say pretty much came out. It's a couple months old. God of War Ragnarok. They're selling that for about forty-two quid. Trading value is something like sixteen pounds. This is Ridiculous why people that. use Amazon and eBay. I, I'm eBaying yeah. a lot of stuff at the moment. I just I'm purging stuff out the the DVD collection and stuff. Well, I don't need that uh, yeah. anymore. I'm I'm not going to watch the Minions movies again or the Despicable Me movies. I think the ones I've got. I'll throw it on eBay for a pound. I don't care. It's what. Yeah. So I, I I'm looking at the the alternative options for acquiring Nintendo gear and games, but I do know that Nintendo mer- or Nintendo hardware is collectible. And I've seen like stories about how the like the value of Nintendo stuff stays really high. And if you're collecting yeah. proper legit stuff from back in the day, you're paying way more than you ever would. Like you're paying for like collectors' items. You know, there's a, yeah. a markup in a sense, whereas most stuff obviously goes down over time. Hmm. So I'm yeah, like, absolutely. The the Nintendo tax, as they call it, hits you hard because uh, I'm lucky to have quite a few DS's. I've got the original silver one, I've got a DS Lite, I've got a 3DS, DSi, a 3DS XL, 2DS, 2DS XL. Uh, just because I know for a fact if I buy it and keep it, at some point I'm going to be able to sell it on because there's going to be some collector looking for it. But the one thing that I've been trying to hunt down, just because my Game Boy Advance SP is on the way out and I refuse to let it die, uh, is, a, is another Game Boy Advance SP. They are stupidly expensive because if they're the brighter screen models they go for at least uh, 200 pound each which the original ds itself or the original game boy advance sp was only 130 pound so you're, you're making just 70 quid of pure profit on that and, and again you could just have one in a box <laughs> I'll, I'll buy a second one in case the first one breaks and it never broke yeah all of a sudden you got an extra 200 quid sitting there and yeah it would yeah. pass that on you know And uh, like yourself, I'm doing just a massive clear out of stuff. Uh, the only thing that I think, the only things that I think might survive are my comics. 
but you know, clothes, uh, rugby stuff. Like I've got uh, my sister-in-law. I, I I'm never sure on how to name all that shit, but my brother's wife, I think, would be my sister-in-law. Uh, she put me on a website called Vinted, and she said, if you're looking to sell shit, sell it on that. And then I I just typed in because I'm selling some rugby kit. I typed in Glasgow Warriors, and then it was just everything. The the lowest price was about twenty quid for a shirt from eight seasons ago. I was like, okay, no, this is the place I need to sell all my kit from because these are collectors that just want this shit. I don't care if they wear it; as soon as they buy it, it's in their hands. As long as I'm getting a decent price for it. Yeah, I uh, had a conversation about this as well at work. We were just chatting about um, like reselling clothes. And sometimes people would just have like, oh yeah, I've got like twenty pairs of spare shoes that I'm gonna sell on. I'm like, huh? You you've you've spare shoes, several pairs of spare shoes. Twenty pairs yeah. is an insane number for me. And they were like, no, oh that's just trainers. Um, that doesn't include like heels and boots and stuff like that. that I have yeah. like fancy stuff. This is just trainers. And I'm like, okay, so, uh, it's weird that we'd have twenty uh, trainers and wear them all enough, but still like sell them on. It's like, no, 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 no. I, these are never worn trainers. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I think in my life I may have had 20 pairs of shoes total, because I think right now I may have eight. That's including a couple of pairs of trainers. And Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine having 20 pairs of just backup trainers, because right now I'm needing a new pair because I've through rugby and other things just torn through a pair of a uh, what they call gym trainers, like with the big plastic, the big rubber heel on them. See, uh, as somebody who walks or runs or goes to the gym and stuff like that, I tear through several pairs a year. But the yeah. idea of having twenty unworn sneakers somewhere in this yeah. in this flat, like I don't even know where I'd hide twenty pairs of sneakers at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I was at the time I was up in Edinburgh, and someone asked me if I had extra weed. And I was like, "Why would I have? Surely, if I have weed." I have enough for me. What is what facilitates extra weed? Like, <laughs> I didn't have any. Obviously, I don't. Not ragging on anyone who does, but I don't, you know, touch that stuff. He does but, not inhale. <laughs> I, I do not inhale. Like, I, it's just the question threw me for a loop. It's like, imagine having things are going well for you if you have extra weed. Like, if you have extra shoes that you can just sell on if you don't need them, or you have a spending habit. Yeah, but I, I just. The reselling thing, if if you can make money off of it, it's worth it because it helps, yeah. you know. Um, but at a certain point, I look at like collections and stuff. I've gone, I don't need that anymore. It can just go. I'll just get rid of yeah. it. Yeah, I'm definitely at that stage now. Looking at uh, just everything in this room, everything in this room around me, just going, you know what? Never gonna, never gonna wear that again. Never gonna play that. Never gonna read that. Never gonna watch that. Chuck it on Vinty. Chuck it on eBay. Get some money off money out of it. And as we, as we said before, there's going to be someday in a charity shop that he goes, "Holy shit, mm. fucking Vanquish on Xbox 360 for a quid! Give me that." You know, it will go somewhere. It will go to use. There's always nerds looking for a deal out there, or people looking for cheap rugby gear, or some woman out there looking, or some man. Let's not discriminate. Looking out there looking for twenty pairs of trainers. <laughs> Actually, I don't think we covered this before, but you had an awesome story of a charity shop find. <laughs> Your mum pulled off the ultimate win for yeah, a, a nerd. I, I don't know how, but uh, they were out in Cumbernauld, and I was just sitting at, sitting at home, probably playing Legend of Zelda, to be fair. 
uh, and I got a phone call saying, uh, "Do you read Berserk?" She, she took a couple of attempts to say the say the the title, which I found pretty funny. And I said, "Yeah, I read Berserk." Uh, she went, "Well, there's a there's a book here for a tenor. Uh, do you want me to grab it for you?" And I went, Aye, go on then. And she went, "It's sealed." Right, it'll surely be one of the smaller ones, and if it's only a tenner, I'll just take it. Maybe a, a volume one or something. And she went, "It's got three on the side." And I was like, "Oh, just you just grab it. If it's uh, no worth anything, I can sell it on or something like that." Thinking that it was just one of the Tankabon like single volume things. And she comes back with a sealed copy of Berserk Deluxe Volume Three. I just went. It was one of those kind of off guard moments. How the fuck did this happen? You got this from tenner. And it was just a kind of case of like, give it to me, close the door. Someone's going to come at you with seller's remorse, right? They're going to come back. They're going to try and find this again. Excuse me, I I, I just realised we've uh, we've asked you to pay the wrong price for this uh, <laughs> collector's yeah. edition version of one of the best stories of all time. But oops. <laughs> oh, and at I, that point, I will defend it to my dying breath. You texted me about that, and I was I was mad. I'm not gonna lie. I was like, fuck you. <laughs> Dude, I was I was shocked. I thought I, I genuinely thought you've robbed someone. You have stolen this from someone who left it in a shopping center. Mom, what do we say about stealing? <laughs> <laughs> you you're not a you're not a young person anymore, mother. You can't run away as quick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the idea of like randomly as you're as you're giving her this kind of mom. You didn't steal this from anyone. She just turns and says. Who would believe an old lady stole a manga? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> it's a perfect crime. <laughs> no one's going to believe you. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm i on a bit of a manga. Uh, we, we've actually found there's a surprising group of anime and manga fans at my work, and we're all just kind of like starting to share stuff with each other. Um, so it's kind of fun. Uh, it's, it's weird. As somebody who really just started getting back into it a couple of years ago, finding other fans and being able to teach them stuff that I've learned. Um and I'm like, okay, like I can I'm now giving away manga to people, which I think is the right thing to do. If you're um if you're getting somebody into a hobby, you should be kind of giving them a little bit to kind of get them engaged and interested. I mean it's it helps with the expense of starting a new hobby, like reading manga yeah. or watching anime or something like that. So it helps ease the cost and the, the burden of entry a little bit. But uh, Yeah, I'm I'm always that guy if someone's saying, I want to start getting into a fighting games or something like that just saying what game should i start with well what, what have you got i've got a, an xbox here's a street fighter collection play that and i guarantee if they like it they're going to go out and buy a copy and that's them hooked so always be always be willing to give people loans of things i mean that actually i, I picked up from uh the teacher in our high school that taught us to play D D. because yeah. he, he gave us a loan of the the dungeon master or the was the player's guide the player's handbook for uh yeah like 3.5 and if I had to go out and buy that, I wouldn't know where to find it, first of all. But at the same yeah. time, the fact that he was like saying, oh, you'd like take a look at this, read this, and check it out, come back to me with any questions, see if it, it all makes sense to you. And I just devoured it in a week, because it was like, oh, it's a gift from somebody who wants me to be interested. I'm engaged. Immediately, I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll get into this bit. So, yeah, I, I'm uh, fulfilling that role in nerd society, that, you know, yeah. the, the older nerd, they just be like, oh, yeah. here, here go my children. Take this crap. <laughs> yeah, we are the we are the elder nerds now. Yeah, the grey in the beard's not a joke anymore. It's yeah, <laughs> it's it's weird when we show up to cons. <laughs> yeah, people ask us if we're okay. Do we want a seat? How's the knees? 
if someone asks me if I want a seat at a con, I'm going to slap the shit out of them. <laughs> I, uh, I'll hit them with the chair. <laughs> that, that was another thing, actually, I was, I was thinking about, was um, I keep missing cons. I, I had this the last couple of years, because you would always come out, oh, I was at this convention. I was like, I didn't know that was on at this point, because I don't, I pay attention to like, concerts and stuff, but I don't pay attention when uh, anime yeah. or nerd conventions are on. So I need to try and get into some this summer, because I've missed out, for, obviously, we've all missed out for the yeah. last two or three years. But I've missed out on them. I think my last convention was 2018. So I need to get to one soon just because I miss going to like be a total nerd for like three or yeah. four days. So I, I, I think I think uh, I can shoulder kind of blaming this. I'm always at those conventions and I think I could text Colin. It's like, nah, Colin works mental shifts. Like there's every chance I'll text him. It's like, oh, cheers, dude, but I'm working. <laughs> that happens so often when it's like uh, Scotland loves anime. I I, find, I forget to book tickets. I had to get good at it this year, or the last hmm. couple of years when it's been on, because I want to be there, especially after COVID, because that's when, like, there's government assistance programs for, like, art stuff to get through, stuff like COVID, hmm. but afterwards, when people are out of the habit, like, we're all out of the habit going to the cinema, so we don't go to the cinema, and then the cinema goes under, see Cineworld, for an example. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the arts suffer and there's no money in movies anymore and people stop making movies, they just start making crap. So, you know, I, I want to try and be there um, for the things that I enjoy. So I have to be actively engaged, but I just forget about anime cons and stuff like that. Hmm. And, you know, the idea of putting several thousand sweaty nerds in a room together during a pandemic, probably not a good idea. Yeah. So well, there was one convention that I did, uh, I did know about, but I skipped because... I went to it last year, and it was it was usually a convention that I could spend all day at. There was generally that much to do, but I went to it this time, and it was it was fairly boring. Like the, the usual artists that they had were just not there. The stalls were half as uh, full as what they usually had, and it was just just a bit of letdown. It was more expensive than it was last time, so I just thought this year, you know, I'll give it a miss. And from what I heard the Facebook group that I, I randomly check in on every now and again. I was kind of right not to go because it was fairly boring, even compared to last time. Uh, the convention I'm talking about is uh, Rycon, which was usually really good. It was really good for a day because you'd go there. Uh, and I know the name of, um quite uh, chatty with one of the guys and his sort of team that runs the game inside. So I usually get roped into doing some tournament stuff. Uh, Literally go there, check in with those guys, ask them if they need a hand, go and have a walk around the stalls. Uh, go and they have an anime viewing area, which was which was pretty cool. Then, you know, go get some lunch, come back, and then you could literally just spend the whole day there you're playing games. They had a shit ton of games up there. Uh, and it was just disappointing to see it going from, you know, we're coming back after, oh, you know, going from strength before COVID to we're coming back after COVID and then just kind of yeah, drifting that, yeah. along. Still getting, still getting out there, but not as successful as it was before. Yeah, it's that kind of like, uh, not quite as good as we were the last time. Feeling, but yeah, you, it's a shame, but it happens. I mean, we all, we're all so off. Um, after two and a half years of just shutdown, so I, if ever anyone's like, I've been surprised that actually the number of bands I've been to see recently has been like, bands are actually pretty decent. I know, but I, there's been stuff where, actually, I don't think I've talked about this yet but um i went to see lordy baby metal and sabaton and hmm. like the, the fact that they are still like a well-drilled like both all three of them are still like well-drilled bands 
and are still like capable of a really good live performance yeah. after two and a half years of no performances at all. That's kind of awesome. Um, I'm really impressed by it. Like I've seen a number of bands uh, since the end of COVID. I mean, I mean, admittedly, I think I got COVID out on those gigs, but uh, the pandemic was over, so it didn't really count. But um, Bad Wolves was the one I was I was at and I got fucked up. Was it the Cat House in Glasgow? And that's a very yeah tight knit uh, area for a gig. <laughs> yeah, that was a sweat box, absolute sweat box of a, a venue. Good venue. Yeah, great but venue. Tiny. I, I want to go there for something else just to see it again in like a different light. Uh, my brother goes to it occasionally as like a, a club, and it says it's just fun. Um, cause you have two rooms, there's an upstairs and a downstairs. Gates yeah. are normally downstairs, and there's not like a, a bit of a, a rave party or something like downstairs. But yeah. um, he was saying that there's, uh, like I said, a totally different vibe when it's a, it's a club. But I would never really go to a club anyway, because you know, graybeard, uh, and never. Yeah, you, you're not in your <laughs> late teens, early twenties, and even at that, clubs are clubs are shite. What? <laughs> I, uh, I would never go because I don't do drugs. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, there's one of the guys. In, there's one of the guys in rugby club because I'm now at that point where I am one of the elder players in the rugby club, being in my early thirties. Uh, just talking to someone that was like, "Yeah, I was out the weekend. Went to a nightclub." And I was like, "Why? Are you going to- <laughs> Why are you? You're not stupid. Why are you going to nightclubs? <laughs> uh, do you just you hate money? You hate being sensible? Do you hate having your wits about you?" I mean, this this is coming from me who I stopped uh, drink. I didn't stop intentionally stop drinking, but uh, during lockdown, and then when it came to opportunities to go and drink after that, I just kind of, you know, I don't really want to do this anymore. So I kind of unofficially stopped drinking a while ago. So like the idea of going into the pub is just, nah, don't want to do it unless it's just a good. Group of people that's like, ah, yeah, come out and like, yeah, she'll sure, have something non-alcoholic. The whole concept of yeah, let's go out to a nightclub. Is, I'm not doing that sober, so absolutely <laughs> not. And I, all the young guys are like, yeah, it's fun because you go and there's there's the birds and that there. Like, the birds that are there now look at me and think you're my dad. You couldn't. <laughs> Some of them, I mean, there's a large percentage of single parent children in Scotland. Some of them will look at me and go, holy shit, it's my dad, and I don't want that risk. <laughs> I don't want anyone looking at me going, holy shit, I found my dad. No, you didn't. I'm not your dad. Get away from me. I wore a condom. <laughs> you can't prove it. <laughs> Run out the door. I know. Smoke bomb. Like, Smoke I know who your mother sand. is, and she's lying. <laughs> smoke bomb, sa- pocket sand, run away. <laughs> yeah, just a Batman smoke pill at my back pocket and run away. I forgot, like, he uses pellets. I forgot it was just like yeah. a little ball, like a marble-sized ball that he just... Yeah, fills the entire room with smoke and runs out the room. Yeah. Like, what? That was that for some reason always annoyed me about Batman, like cartoons. I was like, no, no, it needs to be bigger. It should be a grenade. I always wanted that to be real because it was just you read. Being a Batman fan, I get random little backed files, Batman fact files when I was younger, uh, and it was always things like Batman super concentrated smoke pellets and can fill an entire room with smoke in mere seconds, and it's all to do with and they give you the chemicals that's mixed together and it's like, you know. Isn't he fucking really him? And doesn't he fucking exist yet? And it's, we slam these together, and you know this makes Batman's super uh, potent smoke grenade. And it's, and it's always yeah, like you said, it's like the size of a fucking skill. I want that to be real for any kind of situation. Where it's like, oh, Dom, you didn't do this. Uh, smoke bomb. You just see me going like run upstairs. Hey, where's the spare work? Dom, no, not again. It takes so long to vent out the room. 
Like, just stand there throw the smoke pellets. <laughs> I I was using my oven the other day and hit the wrong setting. So instead of being like the oven, I used it as like the grill. We've got like hmm. the top bit, and that I didn't yeah. realize was covered in some kind of fatty substance that immediately burned and filled the entire oven with smoke. And I spent the next twenty minutes just wafting smoke out the room and gradually releasing it from the oven, wafting out more, and then just releasing and wafting and. <laughs> It was a it was a twenty minute of just like I'm so fucking stupid. <laughs> I hate myself. <laughs> but uh yeah, back to back to Batman. <laughs> uh but yeah, I, his um his smoke pellets would come in handy. <laughs> yeah. Just you know, as long as you don't have to clean it up. But I, yeah. I, yeah, I how was, did we how did we get onto the, the Batman smoke pellet? Thing? I was talking about just like going to different gigs and stuff and how like Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, but I'd been to Lordy, uh, Baby Metal and Sabaton, which was like, a, yeah. the weirdest combination of gigs I could think of. Yeah, at the, the I remember Hydro. you saying. That, I remember you messaging me when you were away to see away to that gig, and you said that Baby Metal were as good as you thought they would be, if I remember right. And then you were disappointed with the Sabaton. So, if I remember Lordy was impressive. I did not expect. Yeah. I, I was like, it's the joke band. No, actually, pretty decent. But um, yeah. Not my type of music. The band that won Eurovision. Yeah. <laughs> Eurovision was like, it just happened, and people keep telling me about it, and I'm like, I do not care. Shut up. <laughs> but um, Lordy, up for a laugh, um, they knew what they were there to do. They're like, yeah, we're here. They actually talk about it as well. They're like, honestly, we're the warm-up band. We're here to get you guys pumped up and a bit hot and sweaty, so let's get that going with this new track, with a new track, Cyber Love or whatever, and they just get into like just these fun songs that, you know, the crowd's there for it. We're all up for a laugh. Um, yeah. Baby Metal come on, and it was weird because I was like, I really hoping for like a mosh pit. I couldn't see one, so I'm like, I don't have the balls or the social skills to start a mosh pit. If I just shoved yeah. somebody to start a mosh pit, I just shoved someone. I didn't start a mosh pit. I get arrested. That's <laughs> I lack the skills to make it into a fun thing for everyone. I'm just yeah, a big if guy you go, who shoved someone. Uh, if you go into a mosh pit and start just shoving people, you're a what six foot tall, bald, large man. Yeah, <laughs> you're just bullying people. I just assaulted someone. <laughs> Yeah. let's open up this pit so we can arrest the guy who just assaulted someone <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm going to get from the stage but, uh, it's like part it's, it's the band are moving apart and everyone else moves back and good to just sweep in and get you yeah <laughs> um, but Baby Metal were really good they're, they're on stage presence is like it, it's an idol show it's not a metal gig if that makes sense Like it's more about the choreography, the dancing the singing's fantastic um, I want to say that the lead singer is Sue Metal um, she's insanely talented when you look at what she's able to do. She's like, mm. it, it's a weird example, but like when you think about somebody like Britney Spears doing like the whole Britney Spears or Beyonce doing the whole choreo choreographed dance and singing live, you know, mm. assuming they're not using backup tracks, which it does happen. Even like idol groups do it as well. Um, yeah, it's actually at the point where I, for some reason I watched like a, a K pop thing where they're like explaining, no, everyone just does this. We just we know it. But we just kind of have to accept it, you know. We can't get the show we want unless there's a little bit of boosted uh, audio. And I was like, okay, well, listening to her sing it, I'm like, it sounds live. It doesn't, because I've gotten to have a making playlist for the bands we're going to see. I listen to all the songs and know how they all sound. So I know, and I listen to it in order of the show. So I know what's coming next. It just makes for an, a more enjoyable experience in a way. Because hmm. I know, oh, yeah. this song's next. I'm looking forward to it. So, for example, I am. Um, didn't really appreciate it that much listening to it before the show, but they have a song yeah. called Monochrome, and it's fan-fucking-tastic. There mm. is, the live version, obviously, their audio is 
really, really good. It's really well engineered in terms of its sound quality. Um, and then there's the original, the album version, uh, which is a surprisingly heavy intro. I did not anticipate it being that heavy. And then there's the, we're on a YouTube channel called The First Take, which is a, it's supposed to be, as it implies, like a raw recording in semi-studio conditions. So it's like mm. a chance for the performer to show off how close they can get to the album version. Um, done for, actually, in a weird, I looked at um, who was on it previously, and I found it due to a VTuber who went on there and did a performance of some of her songs, which are fantastic. But um, it's mostly Japanese artists. There's a few that you might recognize from anime intros. Uh, for example, uh, Liza's been on there. She's a big anime uh, opening uh, performer. Um, but uh, they also had Avril Lavigne for some reason. She's the only Western act I can see on there. But for some reason, Avril Lavigne is big in Japan. Yeah, good for Avril Lavigne for still being relevant. Yeah, I, I was like, in the okay. 2020s. Um, yeah, she was there like, re- like a couple months ago or something like that. I was like, oh, I did not expect her to show up on the channel, but impressive. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird way of... Uh, it's kind of... I don't want to say it's like a, a showcase. Like, uh, who was it that they had... I want to say it was uh, the Tiny Desk performance that they had, where they would just rent out like a library space, and you would just have an entire band do a performance in a small library in America. I can't remember who funded that, but it was um, it was just this weird little YouTube channel. It's, I think it's just called Tiny Desk Performances, but again, it's just an, it's a weird way of showcasing an artist. But uh, I saw Baby Metal perform their monochrome track, but with a piano instead of like the full guitar intro and it's still it it slows the song down but it lets the kind of lyrics settle in a bit more and it's, like, it's actually quite a beautiful song but since mm-hmm. seeing it live and seeing the alternative versions of it i'm like okay really this might be my new favorite song like they have the the joke songs like give me chocolate and stuff like that but uh, on headbang headbang is so much fun <laughs> it wasn't played live but i put it on the playlist just for a laugh and just the, the kind of chorus of like headbang, just like chanting headbang again and again and again. I'm like, this is adorable and hilarious. I really dig it. So I, I if you haven't listened to Baby Metal yet, somehow highly recommend if you somehow missed that one. Yeah, but, I mean, if you're, if you're into metal and you haven't listened to Baby Metal at this point, I mean, to be fair, congratulations, because I don't know how you've just missed one of the most meteoric rises of a band, because even You've just said that Baby Metal, are, they're a fun band, they're quite poppy, they're quite idly. You know, that's not typically what you'd associate with metal, but then you've got hardened metalheads, you know, that... Oh yeah, uh, I was there in the crowd. That like, just I, have embraced the whole thing. I'm very close to the stage, and you have people in, like, the full Sabaton fucking get-up-and-gear, and then it was, um like, they're all, like, fangirling out over, like, Baby Metal, and, like, really excited, and you're like, that's that's awesome, that's kind of really impressive thing that someone actually take like this one culture and then just for like a half an hour show just twist it into just like isn't this fun isn't this exciting isn't this what you want to do and that's one thing that you know you kind of want more of that um in metal just because you know metal is fun for people who enjoy it and you know different ways of expressing the fun are always welcome um but yeah sabaton came on and it started with i think a technical failure um sabaton are known for having a lot of pyrotechnics and putting on uh, a big show with uh, big set pieces. And from the start, the stage is set up with, uh, it, it looks like a, a like an initial kind of like barbed wire fence at the front of the, the show. 
um, which they've included. I mean, when I was there to see Ghost, they pulled on basically like a full uh, ruined cathedral full of like background props and stuff like that. But uh, Sabaton are playing with like a 3D environment thing. And when Sabaton are on stage, it's there's a main, like a battle tank perched in the middle of the stage that the drummer sits on top of as he's playing. And then there's like bunker positions that are wheeled out on stage as well to make this like really interesting setup. I imagine given that they're present at several festivals this year, you'll see it if you're at festivals. Um, because it is it's designed for a festival to be like a big, huge eye, you know, it draws eyes towards it. Like, why'd they bring a battle tank on stage? Um, just because they could. Yeah. But they use a lot of pyrotechnics, and one of them is that that tank cannon fires. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, like physical, like just flames going everywhere. Um, that you can, it's real fire. You can feel the heat coming off it from like halfway across the the stadium that you're at. Um, but I felt like it was just overdone to the point of just insanity. I was like, I was watching it. I was like, you're focusing on the pyrotechnics more than the actual song, and I feel like your audio isn't great quality. I feel like you're we're missing stuff. A lot of their, their best songs were at the start of the gig, and I didn't enjoy them as much as I was hoping I would. Um, but at the start of the gig, like before they even come on, they have a like a, a intro, like historical monologue because they have their uh, one of the most recent albums has a historical version where they give like context uh, intros for every song, and they take the the audio intro for Sarajevo, which is where Archduke Ferdinand is shot, to start World War One. And there's obviously supposed to be a point where they describe the, the assassin firing the pistol twice into the Archduke's chest, uh, which kills him and starts World War One. And you hear the starting monologue with this very kind of obviously British voice giving the introduction of what's going on, the world's tensions, the tensions are rising. And meanwhile, in a small city in Czech, in Czech Republic, there is a group of armed, uh, armed vigilantes or armed uh, freedom fighters ready to deliver justice to a tyrant king that they oppose and then completely out of place there's like a gunshot or there's like the explosions that go off twice and immediately there are like 20 people coming on stage with these red lamps looking each trying to find any undetonated explosives before the band immediately just run on stage and start playing just to try and like cover it up and I'm like oh 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 somebody fucked up <laughs> It was uh, it was interesting, but like immediately after that, they get into I want to say they had like three or four different songs that I liked. I liked the songs in theory, but uh, mm. when it came to playing them live, it's just missing something. Um, they had one of their one of my favorite songs from their uh, playlist. I made a playlist again of their stuff. Um, I'm gonna try and grab the the playlist now. But there's a, a song called Carolus Rex that I quite like. And it's about somebody ascending to the throne of Sweden. And they're a Swedish band. But they sang it in Swedish. Which is a shame because the English version is a great sing-along. And Scottish crowds are great for sing-alongs. Yeah, we get into that shit. And it's a shame they did it in Swedish. Because I'm like, only five of you in the room understand it. And you're all on stage. You could have had a moment with us here. But... Yeah. I don't know. Uh, There's a lot of good songs that they start with. I mean... It's a weird one, though, because they're singing about historical events. So they're singing about just, you know, great warrior divisions. So, like, the opening song was Ghost Division, which is great, but it's a great song. But at the same time, it's still a great song about the Nazis. You know, like, ah, weird. Yeah. And the the second song was Bismarck, which is about, you know, the the ship, the Bismarck. 
uh, and I think I sent you the joke that there was there's two different types of Sabaton fans. There's uh, types of Sabaton fans with a personal bench press record, and the type they know the exact millimeter depth of the armor on the Bismarck, and it is just either complete nerds or complete like fucking Jim Bros jacked out and ready to go in a fucking metal t-shirt. It's an interesting mm-hmm. dynamic because there's a lot of Warhammer cosplay there as well. I'm like, who the fuck showed up as a fucking Canadian commissar <laughs> to a, a Sabaton show? But I guess if you want to do that. Um, although I did enjoy The Last Stand. That's probably, I'd say it's probably my favourite Sabaton song. Um, it's such a weird thing uh, for me to enjoy, but I, I do enjoy that song a bit more than uh, most of the other stuff. But I got to the end of uh, Carol's Rex and was like, I'm not staying for the rest of this. I'm going to just leave. Yeah. Um, I was curious about they did a, a cover of 1916 by Motorhead, uh, but I was like, nah, I was listening to the Motorhead version on the way to the gig, and I was like, this doesn't feel like a, a song I'd enjoy. It's about young yeah. men going off to fight and die in World War One, and it's really depressing. Um, it's, it's brutally honest, which is why it's depressing, but at the same time, like, I'm not here for that at a show. So I just kind of left after uh, Carol's Rex. So, yeah, it was... I imagine this is someone's favorite band, and I saw a lot of positive stuff about it online afterwards. But it just wasn't for me. I was much happier with Baby Metal. Um, I did have a good laugh when I, I left early, and I left, and there was a couple other guys leaving at the same time, and they were just talking about how oh, Baby Metal just blew everybody out of the water. That was awesome. Hmm. And they were just they were having they were just like we don't they were just moaning about Sabaton. And I'm like, did you guys just feel they weren't great either? Like it didn't live up to the hype because like it's. When you hear Sabaton discussed in metal communities, the Sabaton, you won't believe what you see. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's amazing. It's unbeatable. It's untouchable. And then I just kind of left like, that wasn't up to par with what I'd expected. It's a shame. I enjoy some of their stuff. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's not for me. I had the same thing with a gig years ago. It was uh, Amon Amarth, Devon Townsend, and I want to say, it was Fear Factory. And it was, you know, I'm on a Marth, fucking blew doors down. They were fucking outstanding. Yeah. And for for a band, as an opening band, I'm on a Marth was good for them. Devin Townsend played a fucking great set with some, I think it was in about October, so there was some of his more kind of Halloween theme songs in there, some of his more heavier songs. It's a really fucking good set. And then Fear Factory came on and just, eh, they just kind of ambled through their set. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. It still got the crowd going, but at the same time, it just, it didn't match the energy of the first two, so yeah. But luckily, most of the times I, I drive to a gig, so or I get driven to a gig. Uh, usually, someone there's driving, so I jump in with them, and I usually stay till the end of a show. But I think even at that one, I, was, I could leave early, and I'll I don't think I'd miss bro, much. Fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I when I leave a gig and I'm like, just like you know what, I'll just get some fast food and enjoy it on the way home. That's never a good sign. I'll just I'll leave early. Although, actually, yeah. I don't know if I'd mentioned this in the last gig. I did also see Bloodywood. They're touring the US right now. If you get a chance mm. to go see them, and you're in the US right now, go do that. It's fun. Yeah. If you want to talk about energy and pure, like, enthusiasm for the show, Bloodywood basically can't be beaten at this point. Um, I had a really good time listening to them live, and just the... It's it's weird that when I think about, like, back in the days, it was weird that Slipknot had nine members on stage. How does that even work? Bloodywood has that same feel of like, there are like six or seven members showing up to the live show and it's just a fucking party on stage and that energy yeah. immediately goes into the crowd and everybody's just bouncing off each other. It's fantastic. 
So yeah, I'd highly recommend seeing Bloody Bird live. They were really good as well. It's been a good year for gigs. Like Sabaton being yeah. a kind of mediocre disappointment is the worst part of the gigs I've had this year. And mm. um, I was there was a Monomarth was planned for twelfth or thirteenth of June this year. I'm not mm. going to make it. I've already seen them live like three times. Uh, all yeah. as much as I really love the Great Eden Army as an album, and it's a fantastic yeah. album. Um, if you haven't heard Saxons and Vikings, I put it on right now. <laughs> it's that good. It's such a fun yeah. little kind of like. Um, there was an old track on a Corn album uh, called "All in the Family," where it was Fred Durst and Jonathan Davis just insulting each other, going back and forward in little rhyme, rhyming couplets, and that was like just the weirdest part of an album I'd ever heard before. And this has that same feel, but with historical insults between Saxons and Vikings. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> who asked for this? I don't know who asked this, but you're a fucking mad genius. No, you don't know who asked for it, but you're glad that they did, because then you get weird shit like that. Yeah, so I, I won't make it to I'm on a Mars, which is a shame, but I will get to go see The Who with my brother, so that'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, they're going to be in Glasgow, I want to say the end of June, so that'll be <clears> fun. Yeah, uh, it sounds like it sounds like good, and The Who are... I think the Who are quickly becoming one of my favorite bands of this decade because something about the combination of just that that deep bassy Mongolian singing with the the kind of the guitar and the drums in the background is it's hypnotic almost. Mm. And it does kind of it's not lulling you into any kind of sense of like calm and relaxation, but it is it's there in a kind of weird primal sense that hits in, and it's the reason I like uh, Viking metal as well. It taps yeah. into something that you've kind of buried deep within. It's actually, I like about The Who, it's actually got me to play uh, the, the Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor games just because I knew The Who were in it. Uh, I haven't started Jedi Survivor properly yet. I've played it for maybe 20 minutes and what I've played, I, I did quite like. Mm. Uh, I like what they're doing with Cal. Uh, Showing that it's hard to be a Jedi when Jedi are being hunted left, right, and center. You can't do anything without, uh, you know, a bounty hunter literally coming to get you and your public enemies number one, two, and three. Uh, it's hard to be the kind of nice, positive Jedi when all that shit's happening. Uh, but as usual, it's it's EA's attempt to make a Dark Souls type game, but with Star Wars. And occasionally you'll go to a cantina and the Who will be playing. <laughs> all right, that just made the game for me there, right? Fucking there. The, uh, the song that they made for the first one, somebody made like yeah. a one-hour looping cut where you can't tell where the song ends and begins, and it's yeah. just perfect. I put it on once and just had it on and didn't realize I listened to the whole thing without even yeah. considering that I was listening to the same song 20 times. Yeah. Such a good song. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of The Who. And that lends me... I'm going to thank you for the setup there, Colin, because that lends me nicely into talking about what else I found on YouTube. I and completely uh, intended this segue. Definitely oh, intended this. I'm giving you props for that one. I, I enjoyed that immensely. Uh, a DJ called uh, Yumit Ozkin, uh, that's probably not how you pronounce his name. I apologize to any uh, Dutch raised Turkish people out there that might be annoyed by it. But uh, yeah, he's a Dutch DJ uh, born to Turkish parents who does Mongolian techno. And that is. As weird as you think it is, but it's also as good as you think it is. It is just that Mongolian throat singing with the kind of bassy lower tones, and then there's just you know drum and bass in the background. 
fucking awesome. I sent it to you just going, I think I found the next thing coming out of Mongolia. Yeah. <laughs> I, I listened to it and was thinking, this. I, I can see why it works. There's a lot, the, the low bass mixes well together from the throat singing to, into the actual track that's being played. And it does work really well. But at the same time, if you told me to make this myself, I could never have figured out how to just kind of weld the two together. Yeah. The fact that he, the fact that he made it happen and he made it work as well as it does is just magic, quite frankly. Okay, we're back after a brief uh, intermission. Um, I was basically at, one thing we realised I've forgotten to mention. They talked about it last episode was that I did go and see Suzumi, which is Makoto Shinkai's new film, and I did really enjoy it. I saw it twice in the same day because I'm that guy, and I saw it once with the English sub, uh, English dub, and then once with subtitles in Japanese. And I had a great time both times. I I feel like um, I do know there was a lot of complaints about pacing, um, but as far as I'm concerned, the second time I watched it was a lot better. Now that I knew how all the parts weave into the story that's being told, it makes mm. a lot more sense. Um, I did want to go more in depth on stuff. I mean, it's, it's technically still a great film. Makoto Shinkai's work is still as far I would say it's an, an unimpeachable, but somebody will say, oh no, I don't like his style. But I'm like, you're, you're objectively wrong. No. <laughs> but um, I, I had a great time with it I, I want to see it again though on Evening Boy because we, I wrote these notes weeks ago when we watched the film and we've only just kind of sat down to record but again highly recommend it I, I told everyone who was who knew I was going to see the film I'm going to walk away giving this one a 10 out of 10 it's inevitable I just, I'm a Shinkai fanboy so it was, yeah. it was fun to see it though and I really I like a good cinema day when I go there and I just sit with a, a coffee watching um, a, a, watching a movie, it's a great way to spend an afternoon. Um, so yeah, I, I I did go get to see that, but I would like to give the recommendation. But I think I already recommended it several times before we get to this episode. Yeah. Uh, but actually seeing him put together the final piece was like really enjoyable, and the fact that the second screening with the subtitles uh, was supposed to take place in the exact same room as the first one. Um, it then got bumped up to a bigger cinema room because there were too many people who had booked tickets but they're like we want to put the screening on anyway so we'll just give you a bigger yeah. room to watch it and i'm like that's hmm. awesome <laughs> um so yeah it was a fantastic film but i mean other than that the only thing i really uh did is i got the audiobook for joey diaz uh tremendous which is his autobiography he's, he's talked about it a little bit with his um on his podcast and stuff he was saying that he was working on making uh, an autobiography of just the, the story of his life, because his comedy is based on his storytelling, which is a fantastic storyteller. And he's... If you ever want to basically get the, the highlight reel of Joey Diaz, I mean, frankly, just watch all this stuff, because he's, he's a hilarious person. But if you ever want the highlight reel, this audiobook, uh, or the, the, the autobiography, is basically his, uh, his greatest hits album, essentially. I remember when you said that you said to me that you were watching or you're watching, uh, listening to that audiobook. I thought, well, it's Joy Diaz. It's not going to be a short book. Like, I thought, surely that's got to be two or three volumes with the amount of shit that that guy's done. Yeah. It's only, I want to say it was eight hours, which is not bad. It's not a massive book, but I mean, if you want to hear all the stories, he's got hours, hundreds of hours worth of podcasts. Uh, between the original show, which was uh, The Church of What's Happening Now, uh, he mentions actually he did a podcast before called Beauty and the Beast, which was a f another LA comic back in the day. Um, and then he has now uh, Uncle Joey's Place, which mm. is still it's, it's very good um, 
he started it when he moved back to New Jersey because he, he was bored, he wanted something to do. And his way of just kind of, the introduction is like you walk into Uncle Joey's place. There's like a door, you hear a little bell ring, and then Uncle Joey greets you at the door. And I'm like, it is so on brand with his current uh, mentality where he's now an older man, he's a father. It's his kind of, it's on brand is the best way to describe it. And it's such a good way to talk about, you know, his new approach to life now that he's out of LA, now he's out of the, the celebrity grind. But his um his stories from the, the grind years are fascinating. Like he's talking about the fact that like he's at his worst in terms of cocaine usage or he's at his worst in terms of like his drug use when he's just starting to make it in Hollywood. <laughs> he's like high all the time showing up to sets that are he's at the longest yard set and he's like stealing shit constantly just to go and get more drugs. You know, like that's wild. Yeah. Fuck. He's uh Uncle Joey Diaz is another uh you either love him or hate him. And and you yeah. will know the second if you if the preview for the audiobook starts at the exact start of the the audiobook where he just starts with hey you know, if you're in and you, you you love Joey Diaz, it's the fucking perfect audiobook. Um and it's narrated by him, of course, because I don't think anyone other than him should be telling his story. It's not believable yeah. from anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. But uh yeah, I I, I think Quentin Tarantino had someone narrate his. Yeah, it was somebody else because he did the opening and outro for his audiobook and then mm. had somebody else read it. And I'm like, okay, well that's fine. But with Joey, nah. Joey Diaz can only tell the Joey Diaz story because it's so personal and it's so it's it's all ties back into other memories and ideas and stuff like it all ties together so well you can see where he comes from and it's I'm amazed that we you know, we live on the same planet as Joey Diaz that's fascinating yeah. to me you know the only, the only thing with Joey Diaz is that he has a very specific voice I can imagine some of it you would have to go back and say what wait, what the fuck did he just say there. Not because it sounds difficult, just because, it, in fact, it might sound difficult for some people, but more often than not, if you're rewinding that book, it just, wait, it'd be more a case of, wait, he did what to a, a nun? What the <laughs> fuck is this? Now, see, I, I watch so much of his stuff that I'm used to it, so I may have already, I might just be able to bypass it and just hear what he's saying. But yeah, I, I would say his his speech is so much better for this audiobook reading than it is on podcasts or when he's telling yeah. stories or when he's doing comedy shows. Um, It's different. It's slightly off. I mean, um, listen to a lot of Dan Carlin stuff as well. And his audiobook performance is slightly different from his podcast voice, even when he's doing like uh, his own story. Or when he's, yep. he's talking, like he, him reading his own work. Uh, he talked about it in a, in a podcast with uh, Rick Rubin. He said, it was so hard to not sound like I was doing my narrator voice. I, he just has a little switch that he can flick and he sounds verbally different when he's reading a quote from a textbook as opposed to just talking through his ideas. Yeah. And he said it felt like I was doing the quote voice for the entire audiobook. And I'm like, and it was slightly different. It wasn't your quote voice, but um, I'd say somehow Joey's way of delivering the book is so much better than his, or so much more easy to understand. I was about to say legible, but it's an audiobook. The legible isn't really the word, um, but it's much easier to understand him in this audiobook. It's it's cleaner audio. I don't know what he did. Yeah, it's fascinating, but it's it's maybe just uh, something that he did during the recording process sounds a lot better. So it's it's good for an introduction to something. So if somebody's like, I kind of want to hear about this Joey guy, you go, hey, I got the product for you. Um, yeah, but I'd I'd say just go in the deep end of Joey Diaz. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I'd, I'd go with the Ask the Pilgrims clip just for fun. <laughs> so, yeah, that was. I highly recommend Joy Diaz Tremens. I think you'd enjoy it. I'll give it a look because I'm always looking for uh, books, either of the audio or the print variety, just to sit and leaf through. Because yeah, I've got a couple of things that I need to watching wise that I need to finish. I started watching uh, Samurai Jack again just because. Uh, I had a wave of nostalgia and I thought, what episode do I want to watch? Then I remembered the episode where Jack meets the Scotsman. <laughs> Usually I'm not a fan of uh, Americans doing uh, accents, but the Scotsman just holds a funny place in my heart. I like hearing John DiMaggio shout, shut it! And it's funny, Scottish bro. <laughs> uh, and the reason why I started watching Samurai Jack is because uh, I managed to find, I say I, uh, my brother managed to find the complete box set of Ed, Ed and Eddie on DVD. 30 quid. And for someone who grew up in the 90s, I was just like, fucking buy it. You have to buy it. Like, <laughs> it's an absolute bargain. Like, even to this day, I will argue with anyone that it is the greatest cartoon of all time. Simpsons up to a point, yeah, I can give you that. Simpsons was a, probably the greatest cartoon of all time. But then it hit something like season 15 and you're like, okay, that's enough. Like, we don't, we don't, we're not interested in Simpsons. They jumped the shark, but it's still going because people need paid, I suppose. Yeah, but, it makes money, so it's still going. But Ed, Ed and Eddie, for all five seasons and three specials, six seasons, sorry, uh, and three specials in a film, it was never bad. It was just banger after banger and just endlessly quotable. And even watching it now, I don't know if it's just, if it shows that my sense of humour hasn't really changed since I started watching it back in the late 90s, early 2000s. But it's still so fucking funny. Like Ed, you just, you've just got to love Ed. He's just <laughs> the typical, easygoing, lovable character who has the strength of Thor Odinson and he can just lift up caravans and houses like nothing. How dare you limit Ed to the strength of Thor Odinson? He is a yeah. god amongst men. <laughs> yeah, Ed and Rolf, if those two had a proper fight, it would destroy the planet. I would. I imagine somewhere on the internet you can find a fan animation of them shattering the planet with punches. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say this. After watching a couple of episodes of Ed, Ed and Eddie, Ed rarely feels pain. Like, I reckon he does not feel pain. He eats a mattress at one point. Yeah. He eats a mattress. He, uh, with a tree stump, destroys a swing park just effortlessly. Like how you would check your phone. That's how Ed just destroys a swing park. He's a primordial being. He doesn't. <laughs> yeah, he is a primal being that has existed since the dawn of time. Like, who's the character in Dark Souls? Um, Manus. Manus. The, the dark. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, Manus, the primordial being. That is Ed. It's just, if we want to continue, we have to consume Ed because <laughs> he is the, he's the strongest being alive. Yeah. It, it... It's a it's a childhood classic for us because that was what we grew up on, and to the point yeah. where we just like just say to each other, "What are those?" <laughs> yeah, and Double D is still probably one of my favorite characters, just because it will be a he's the voice of reason, and it will just occasionally he'll let that slip and just act as much of a shit as the rest of them. Yeah, ah. the moments of uh, Double D breaking are where he just yeah. like slinks into everybody else's kind of like idiocy. He, he, yeah, that's it's weird because it was such a weird character moment for me. You're like, oh, this is different, and you you knew it was different somehow, but you didn't quite know how to explain it. Yeah, and then Eddie's just constant scheming and stuff like that it was it was classic 
you know, that's just a classic cartoon character. It just happens to be he's Eddie. He's the leader of the group. He's got the ideas. They never quite work out. But you've got the yeah, Eddie, he's trying to make money for jawbreakers. Yeah, you've got the Eddie and the genius walking along behind them. Yeah, and they're the main characters. Of the show from you know. Yeah, I I think the trio for me it's always the trio that were always the the main characters. What I love about Ed, Ed and Eddie it was the fact that uh, Danny Antonucci. Uh, was in, was famous for he worked for Hanna Barbera. He did early work with on Scooby Doo and things like that. His his stock and trade was making adult animations for MTV, mm-hmm. and it was quite literally someone dared him to make a kids show. And he went, "Fuck you! I'll make a kids show." And he just went and made the best kids show of all time, best cartoon of all time. I just like that idea of just you'll know date. Mm-hmm. Fucking watch me. <laughs> I will go for it. I uh, I miss it. I, I wonder if it's uh, around anywhere. I imagine it's on some streaming service somewhere. But it's, I think it's it might. I'm, in fact, it isn't on HBO Max. But the box set's there, and it's only thirty quid. Hmm. I know for a fact. After my brother bought it, when I was at Pathfinder the following day, I showed it to some of the guys there, and they just phones out Amazon bought <laughs> there and then. I think for me, if I was doing any one of those shows, it'd be Dexter's Laboratory. Yeah, something about uh, Gendy Tartakovsky cartoons. They seem to be making a bit of a comeback because uh, Gendy Tartakovsky, he made uh, Dexter's Lab, Samurai Jack. Uh, he also did uh, a kind of amazing Clone Wars cartoon, Star Wars The Clone Wars in 2003. Uh, he had a show about a guy and a dinosaur. Primal. Primal, yeah. Right. Primal is genuinely one of the best cartoons you'll ever watch. There's no dialogue. It's literally a caveman and a T-Rex fighting their way through prehistoric times. And the only time you hear anyone talking slightly is when uh, Spear, who's the main character, he shouts at Fang the T-Rex because uh, Fang keeps eating what he's trying to hunt. <laughs> it's brilliant. And it's the same guy that made Samurai Jack and Dexter's Lab. So I can only expect Given that it's a Gendy Tartakovsky cartoon, there's going to be a woman with an absolute dump truck in there somewhere. Because <laughs> he is fascinated with that. There, there is something about those 90s cartoons where you're like, ah, where, did they, where did the fascination with the ass come from? Like, I fucking know where. <laughs> yeah. Same with, I think we've talked about this before, but it's like, uh, why are we all like fascinated with muscular women? I'm like, do you remember fucking gladiators? Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, do you remember Jet? <laughs> That entire cast, that entire roster, and just like solid tens all the way down. It's like, oh, why are all yeah. these young young men obsessed with muscular women? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, may I point you to Saturday night TV? There's a little thing on Saturday nights at about seven o'clock after you've had your dinner called Gladiators, and just after that, you woke up to Sunday morning cartoons where the mom had a dump truck ass. <laughs> yep. Ah, what a time to be alive! Exactly. Well, take me back. Speaking of uh, nostalgia from the, the early 2000s, I have my elevator pitch ready to go. Yeah, I've got mine. So I uh, discovered, kind of, uh, that there is a missing System of a Down album. And it's all there on YouTube for free because it's all the kind of extra kind of like B cuts and um, stuff that never really made it to the main albums. And I just I didn't believe it was a real thing. But I eventually just found this album I just quickly grab the, the link here hmm. and send it to you as well because I was fascinated 
by uh, this album called Storage Melodies, and it's from the early era of System of a Down. So I think steal this album that era, and it just never really made it to print. It apparently was available in Japan, um, because they love like collectors editions and special editions that don't release anywhere else. Uh, there's a lot of songs from there. Uh, a lot of songs from like different releases, stuff they did for movies or TV shows. There's apparently a song they did for South Park at one point on the mix, which is awesome. Um, but the whole thing is there. I'll be in the the show link. I know it's just because I was in a system of a down mood after listening to Scars on Broadway, as they say. Uh, I put it up on Twitter mm-hmm. as being like, I, I think it was around the time of the coronation. I said, if we didn't really throw a street party and none of you came, so fuck yourself. But uh, if we did, here's some of the songs that be on the playlist. And the first thing I put on was uh, Scars on Broadway's They Say, and it just got me into like a system of a down mood. And just I realised how much I missed that band um, from, you know, back in the day. And just never, we're not getting another album. They, they're very enthusiastic about the fact they're never going to release another album. So I just decided, I luckily found this um, in amongst random YouTube links. And it was somebody was talking about it like, some, like it was just a thing everybody knew about. And I'm like, I've never heard of this album before. This is an extra album of one of my favorite bands coming out of the fucking mists of time uh, to be a blessing to my ears. So that's my link of the day, my elevator pitch to you. I just like the fact that System of a Down were so busy at a certain point. They just had a backup album just full of other songs. Like, yeah, we could just drop this. <laughs> Yeah, we'll hypnotized, mesmerized. They all came out and did hypnotized, mesmerized, and terrorized. Did so well that it just we can just cut bits off of that and leave them in the background. Well, that was two thousand eight. Was hypnotized, mesmerized, and this is from stuff before that. This is like two thousand four. I want to say. Um, all right. Oh, I looked up some of the notes on the album production. It was like, yeah, here's all the stuff we just kind of found lying around. Two thousand four. We have an entire album of just the bits. You're like fucking hell. <laughs> it's like when you learn about the the meteora twenty. Uh, additional release from like Linkin Park and it's like yeah here's yeah. all the extra bits and pieces we had and there was the entire album there and you're like please yeah. and, and that's it with that band they had reanimation as well which also featured a bunch of stuff that didn't make the cut like how much stuff did you guys have just yeah. in vaults somewhere I mean that's what happens when you have a group of um going to use the word pioneers, but in the sense that New Metal had just come out, it was fresh, and Linkin Park, Slipknot, and Korn were kind of leading the way. I mean, other bands factored in heavily, but if you were listening to metal music in the early 2000s, late 90s, those were three bands that you probably heard of quite a lot. I mean, you factor in Limp Biscuit if you want. They were probably just making music. For the sake of making music. And they were handing it over to... Producers, uh, record label, stuff. record labels, and producers and things, and they go, "Well, that one doesn't really land." It's like, "Cool, cut it. Uh, let's chuck this in." Like, "Oh, that works." And you know, you get Meteora, which, despite the fact that I don't really listen to more modern Linkin Park, Meteora is still one of the greatest albums produced. I'll, I'll say that hand on heart. Uh, you get that, and then if they cut out a couple of tracks from that, you then get this new or the new album, uh, the twentieth. 20th anniversary release that from what I've heard is pretty damn good. I don't think it's actually I don't think I've listened to it in its entirety yet because I've been busy but the fact that you can now in 2023 years after Chester's unfortunate passing listen to new material from him. Mm. Awesome. So I'm all for that shit. What was your elevator pitched on? 
Uh, my elevator pitch is a it's a YouTube channel called Design Dot, and it's uh, basically these short little essays, like video essays, but 10, 12 minutes long, uh, talking about uh, what makes a good uh, unbeatable boss type of character. Uh, giving an example, Mr. X from Resident Evil 2, what makes him frightening? What makes him a good unbeatable boss? Uh, also, other videos along the lines of what makes a good first boss. And, uh, if you're meant to be fighting fighting an, an opening boss that sets up the game going forward and teaches you how to play the game, here's what you need to do. And it's all about going back kind of in depth into video games. And I kind of hit, hit it through a weird wormhole of just. I think it was I was on a Zelda jag, and I just watched a video explaining the Hyrule timeline, and that led me on to why Zelda's. Why Breath of the Wild's um, open exploration teaches you more about the game than you think, and I thought that's quite interesting, and I, I quite like that. And it goes in depth on how uh, games like Dark Souls, how they are more environment-based storytelling as opposed to just here's a sheet of paper, read it, or here's a, a cutscene, here's dialogue. It's more, yeah, you know, go and investigate this area and read the items that you find there or pick up shit. And as someone who's absolutely shit at the Dark Souls games, getting an insight like that is invaluable. And it it does talk a lot about the the Dark Souls lore. I think that might be why I, I found it because of, yeah, I went from Zelda, then a friend of mine who was streaming Dark Souls said, hey, look up lore videos and that kind of fed into a wormhole where it was just this weird kind of Dark Souls and Zelda, which are not distinct in certain cases. They, they kind of feed into each other. A lot of people were saying how Elden Ring was basically just Breath of the Wild for adults, which, <laughs> even though I'm a Zelda fan, I kind of found that funny. So yeah, if you want to learn a bit more about video games, what makes a good video game, I'd highly recommend uh, Design Doc on YouTube. That's good. We'll put both those links into the, the show notes. I'll try and remember put them out on Twitter. Yeah, I, I like a good video essay. It's yeah. been uh, it's an interesting way of learning about things, especially if you've got somebody who's good, and especially you can either be comedic or you can have a good technical knowledge. And I like the guys yeah. who have a really good tech, especially on video games. You think, oh, it's just a video game. There's a yeah. lot of work that goes into this weirdly unique art form. Yeah. Although I am, I'm fond of those videos where they talk about lore and uh, some technical things. I'm not down for videos talking about, you know, exact button presses and things like that. Because there was a video that uh, got sent to me and it was a 25-minute video explaining button press geometry in Super Mario Bros. 64 or Super Mario 64 and how each push of the A button actually counts as three presses and if you move to a certain point in the game, the game geometry adds up the random numbers in such a way where it actually launches you through the stage. I just don't care about that. I mean, it might be the fact that I don't like Super Mario 64. Other Mario games are better. Super Mario Sunshine. Fucking play that. Much better game. Play <laughs> Super Mario Galaxy. Infinitely fucking better. Super Mario 64 just feels of its time. Or if you, I mean, if you really want to play a good version of Super Mario 64, buy the DS version. It's eight quid everywhere. Just fucking buy it. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm not interested in that. There's, there's weird niches and rabbit holes you can fall into. Like I watched one where someone's explaining how you can, for Super Mario Party, you can rapidly double tap the A using two thumbs and you rattle the controller off the back of your hand at the same time and it gives you like several thousand 
uh, hits per second as opposed to uh, whatever. Like, you know, you get more hits per second, therefore you win all the Mario Party games. And I'm like, if you do that, yeah. uh, if you're there playing with friends and you pull that trick out, you're the dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you're doing it for a YouTube video or to get like a world record, yeah, cool, go for it. But if you're like, yeah. I'm hanging out with me and the boys and I'm going to just kick the shit out of everyone, like, you're not coming yeah. back to the next Mario Party. It's the same with uh, Super Smash uh, Super Smash Bros. Melee. There was a, uh, I've, I've probably, in fact, I say probably, I've definitely told this story in the podcast before, but there was a guy who refused to play in a tournament because his original controller broke. He was given a replacement, but it wasn't broken in the exact right way. So he tried to then break it before the game. And the guy said, no, you're using my backup controller. I'd rather you didn't break it. Why does the controller need to be broken in such a way to play the game? And it's so that the C-stick can be moved by shaking the controller. So you can actually basically buffer in different moves as you're jumping. That doesn't need to be there. If you need to break the controller, play a game. I'm just going to say, you're not playing the game, right? Yeah, if, if you need that to win, you don't deserve to win. <laughs> yeah. Dick. And that might be a, a white boy podcast uh, <laughs> sensibility, but if you need to break something to win a game, especially if you're borrowing it of someone else, like, honor. Well, we are the whitest boy podcast that is confirmed. So if you'd yeah. like to reach out to us, and we are just another it. white boy. We are just more white boys with podcasts. We found a meme, kids. I'm not going to lie. It's very funny to us. Yeah. <laughs> We will not explain it. You can ask us to explain it on Twitter at Jibberfish, or you can reach out to us by email at jibberfishpodcast at gmail.com. And in the meantime, I've been Colin Graham. I've been Tom Anderson. And we've been talking Jibberfish.